Welcome to episode 174 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, have you ever thought about how your skills as a backpacker can be a huge benefit to yourself and others during a natural disaster? Today we'll share a story from a listener who experienced the devastation in Puerto Rico and used his skills to help others. Then we'll share a survival hack that will turn your empty pack into something that everyone should have, just in case. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first. 40 miles. All right, do you want the good news first or the bad news? Uh, give me the good news first. <laughs> Actually, I don't have any good news. I just have <laughs> bad news because disasters are inevitable. Natural disasters, they keep happening. Hurricanes, tornadoes, floods. We haven't had any volcanoes recently, but that's not to say we couldn't. Right. I mean, it's only been 35 years since Mount St. Helens, and that's just a blip in the history of things. And we're expecting here in the Northwest a massive earthquake. I mean, since I was a little girl, I've known about the big one. Yeah, every three to 500 years. And we're kind of right in the middle of that window right now. So, hey, it could be another 100 years away, long after we're dead, or it could be today. You're freaking me out. <laughs> it could be today. We got to finish this episode first. Okay. Um, but we're always trying to be prepared. And some of this might seem like it's a long ways away from the topic of backpacking. But as we'll talk about today, these two topics of preparedness and backpacking are absolutely connected. Our community and county have been doing a good job on uh, emergency preparedness, and we've had a couple of emergency preparedness fairs lately. Uh, we have another one coming up in April, and we had one last fall where we learned all about that uh, Cascadia earthquake that is coming someday, learned all the science behind it, uh, had some classes and, and booths teaching different uh, preparedness skills, how to be ready for when something happens, uh, what to do after an event happens, uh, immediately after, and then up to a few weeks after, and, uh, and lots of supplies and things that you can have on hand that would help in a disaster. And our backpacking gear really plays a big role in all of that, at least in our family, because that's what gives us the ability to be mobile when a disaster happens, or to be stationary, you know, to stay at home but hunker down without the usual utilities that you might have. Either way, that backpacking gear comes in really handy. At that last preparedness fair, um, Heather, you had a table demonstrating different water purification options. And of course, because all of our gear is backpacking gear, we had a whole table full of different backpacking filters and other purification options, many of which have been in Summit Gear Reviews on past episodes of the podcast very lightweight and handy and do a good job of giving you a liter of water when you need it. It was interesting to me that on the table next to us was someone else with some preparedness gear. And one of the things they had on their table was a water filtering system that was like a couple orders of magnitude different size than ours. <laughs> that sounds kind of geeky, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, 
They had these huge filters. They were inside of these kind of blue plastic casings. They were about two feet long and about six inches or more in diameter. And there were like three or four of these all uh, in a kind of a system, you know, where the water would go through and, and get filtered. And it kind of illustrates the difference between the backpacker approach and the prepper approach in some cases that, you know, our approach is to have something that's super lightweight and compact to use on the trail. And we get a liter or two of water out of it. And over the course of a week-long backpacking trip, you might get a couple gallons of water through your filter. And then their approach on the table next to us was like, what if the water supply goes bad and you want to be able to supply water to, I don't know, an entire community maybe, <laughs> <laughs> at least to your compound up in the mountains or something, then they could probably filter hundreds of gallons of water per minute through wow. these huge filters that they had. But it's just a, a big contrast there. And there's a place for both of those approaches. Um, we like our lightweight backpacking filters that we can take anywhere. But we also recognize that long-term, uh, boy, we'd be doing a lot of work to pump out a liter at a time, a liter at a time over the course of several weeks to support our whole family or even you know, our neighborhood. That would be pretty tough. So it was really fun at these preparedness fairs that we've been to recently to see all the different ways that people are getting ready for the big one, you know, whatever that ends up being. But it was also fun to recognize the different ways that as backpackers that we're probably a lot more prepared than we give ourselves credit for. So this might be a good time to ask yourself, what are you doing to be prepared? What can you do? And then if you're a brand new backpacker, then what is the first step if you have nothing and you kind of want to do double duty with your gear? You want to make sure that you have, you know, great gear for backpacking, but also you want it to be on the ready in the front room closet so that if there is a disaster, you can just grab your stuff and go. And I think we have some good answers for you today. Yeah, that's a great question to think about as we go through today's top five list about the top five ways that being a backpacker can help you during a disaster. And the number one way that being a backpacker can help you during a natural disaster is that you have developed the skills to be self-sufficient. Not only self-sufficient, but independent, forward-thinking, problem-solving. That's the classic backpacker cocktail of attributes. It's a backpacker's mindset to be self-reliant. It's that idea that I'm in charge of my response and I'm going to figure this problem out. I mean, can you even imagine going into the wilderness and having Sherpas carry your pack, make your meals, pitch your tent, filter your water for you? Well, yeah, I can imagine okay. it. <laughs> but Our kids I've never can imagine done it. it. <laughs> oh, right, right. Uh, our kids can remember it, yes. <laughs> well, you're going to do all of those things yourself because you can. Plus, as a backpacker, not only are you going to be a problem solver, you're going to be a pre-problem solver and ask those what-if questions and find answers. So these are the traits that make you, as a backpacker, better prepared for disasters. And these thinking skills, they come up all the time on the trail. It might be that uh, you've gone a little further than you had hoped without finding a water source, and you have to problem solve that. Or you're not sure that you're going to make it all the way to your planned campsite that night. So you need to find a place to make camp for the night. Whatever it is, you know that you're out there and you've got to come up with a solution to your own problems. There's no kind of, you know, button that you push that will just uh, 
pluck you out of where you are and put you back in home in your bed for the night. You've got to problem solve right where you are right then. The number two way that being a backpacker can help you during a natural disaster is that you are at home anywhere. The American Red Cross shelters can be a huge blessing during natural disasters, but at some point during the disaster, you might want to weigh the cost of staying in a shelter and venture beyond the shelter once it's safe. Uh, And the shelter itself is not exactly like being at home for most people. And also, there's no guarantee that the shelter closest to you won't already be filled beyond capacity. Um, There's going to be little privacy the resources drain quickly, and not to be too crude, but the smell inside the shelters may be a combination of every single person inside of that room, and so will the noise. So it's going to be just kind of a bustling place, and from what I know about myself and what I love about backpacking, I love the solitude. So being in a shelter is going to be a little bit of a challenge. And so the idea of just as soon as possible taking off once the main part of the disaster has kind of uh, wrapped up, just kind of getting out beyond the teeming masses and finding that solitude again. Even if you do have to stay among the teeming masses, I think that adaptability that you get from backpacking still helps a bunch. You know, the the first time we've talked about uh, sleep on the trail I can't remember which episode it was. And we talked about how the first time that you go out, especially the first night of your first backpacking trip, you just don't sleep very well. It's very different from being at home. There's these forest noises that kind of keep your mind alert and imaginative. And it's not the same as your bed at home. The temperatures aren't the same. Just so much is different. You just don't sleep very well. But over time, you start to adapt. And at the end of a week-long trip, you're sleeping just fine every night on the trail, maybe partly because you're exerting yourself so much during the day (laughs) that you're just exhausted. But it's not just that. It's that you've adapted and you've become accustomed to the sounds and sights and, and temperatures and everything of the forest, and you've become accustomed to your bedding setup and, and all of that. So that helps big time if you need to leave your house after a disaster and set up camp somewhere. If you've never done that before, then it's going to be just like that first night on your first backpacking trip. You're not going to sleep well. The problem is, on a backpacking trip, when you don't sleep well the first night, it's not a big deal. You've got some leisure there. But when it's a disaster that just hit and you don't sleep well the first night, how do you function the next day when you have really critical decisions to make and your, your energy is needed to help respond to that disaster? That's not when you want to be trying to go through that adaptation process of getting used to sleeping somewhere outside of your own bed. You want to have already gone through that process by going on lots of backpacking trips. I think it's also empowering to know that you have the physical ability to evacuate the area by foot if need be. This might be an extreme case, but it's still a really empowering thought that you have the ability to travel 10 or 20 miles in a day. Maybe more because you're on concrete. You could probably uh, go a lot faster not having to step over all those roots and rocks on the trail. Yeah, depending on the disaster. (laughs) Ah, that's right. Mother Nature does kind of wreak havoc when it comes to landscape. But I agree you have that confidence that you can cover 10 or 20 miles on foot if you need to, even with some weight on your back. And a lot of people don't have that confidence if they haven't been out backpacking. They really wouldn't be able to tell you if that was something they could do or not. 
The number three way that being a backpacker can help you during a natural disaster is that you are less dependent on public services and utilities. So say your utilities go out in a disaster. There's no water, there's no electricity, no natural gas, no Wi-Fi, no cellular network, no garbage pickup. Tell me, how is that any different than going on a backpacking trip? About the same, only that uh, on a backpacking trip, the entire forest is your bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're stuck at home after a disaster, uh, well, like us, we live on less than a quarter acre. There's not quite an entire forest to use as a bathroom, (laughs) but we still have the skills that we've learned out backpacking for how to properly handle human waste. That's true. still come in handy. So true. And with natural disasters, you really have no firm timeline as to when any of those things will be restored. You could be without power for three weeks. You could be without water for quite a long time. Um, So there's some uncertainty there. And that will test a lot of people being without those modern conveniences. You know, um, they say that if you're in a new relationship and you want to test how that person reacts in a stressful situation, turn off their (laughs) Wi-Fi. That is the ultimate test of a a relationship. Wow. I'm realizing that you never had the opportunity to test me that way (laughs) in our new relationship that was formed before Wi-Fi. That's right. It was a total gamble with you, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like I won. The number four way that being a backpacker can help you during a natural disaster is that you can help your neighbors. And if you're a new backpacker, you might be thinking, I can barely take care of myself. How am I supposed to help the people around me? I love the phrase, I can't do everything, but I can do something. So when you are self-sufficient to whatever degree that is, it puts you in an incredibly humbling position where you can help those who can't help themselves. And you can probably think of neighbors around you right now that are somewhat vulnerable. So um, families with young children, uh, maybe you have a neighbor who's a widow, maybe someone that you know nearby is economically struggling. Uh, There are lots of ways that you can step in and help in a disaster. And I think today's listener story illustrates this perfectly. And I can't wait for you guys to hear this story. But not now. We have to finish our top five list. (laughs) When a disaster happens, everyone will be needed, not just the government or the the emergency responders. In the United States, there are about 1.2 million emergency responders, including police, fire, and EMS. What's the population of the U.S.? 323 million. So that's a ratio of about 300 to 1. For every 300 people in the U.S., there's one emergency response person. Uh, as a you know professional as their as their profession well 300 to 1 in the town where we live a population of about 24,000 that would give us uh, an estimate of about 80 emergency responders and i don't even know how many of those approximately 80 emergency responders live in our town versus those that commute in from other places so who knows what'll happen but uh, with that ratio of 300 to 1, it basically means that on a day-to-day basis, yeah, a few people call 911 and the emergency responders are there to take care of their needs. But in a disaster situation, when the one person calling 911 becomes, say, a couple hundred people calling 911, there's just no way 
that they can cover that kind of a response the way they do on a day-to-day basis. They'll have to focus on critical infrastructure needs. They'll also have to focus on kind of the special needs situations, like making sure the hospital is running, making sure the nursing homes are taken care of. And that means that when it comes to our neighborhood, we will be the emergency responders for our neighborhood. Everyone in our neighborhood who can do it will be doing that. I work with emergency medical services data all the time, which means I sit at a computer and I look at information about people's emergencies. But that profession, being an emergency responder or EMS personnel, I think that's that would be one of the hardest professions for me personally to do. The things you see, the things you experience, I only see them as data points. But those people in those professions see them as stories and real experiences right in front of their eyes, the sounds, the sights, everything surrounding them. And that's someone's personal disaster going on. It'd be really hard to deal with. And we're so grateful for the first responders, but we have a place in that story as well. And that means that when it's time to do something, we need to step in and help our neighbors. And as hard as that will be, at least as backpackers, we've gotten some practice with that. We've had those opportunities where I can only take a couple extra pounds in my pack to lighten someone else's load, but three or four other people were also able to take a couple extra pounds in their packs, and we lightened this person's load by 10 or 20 pounds. It made a big difference for them because we were all pitching in. And the number five way that being a backpacker can help you during a natural disaster is that backpackers have the basic three. We have resources, skills, and experience. A few weeks ago, we talked about the five basic tools of outdoor survival that bushcrafters use. Oh, correcting yourself. (laughs) Back in that episode, we accidentally said bushwhackers. And, you know, once we record an episode and produce it, it's done. We don't go back and change it. Uh, Well, And those tools are cut, cup, cordage, cover, and combustion. And if you want to learn more, go check out episode 171 at thefirst40miles.com slash 171. If you want to boil those five basic tools down even further, you really only need three basic things to survive, and that's resources, skills, and experience. And so this gives you a chance as a backpacker to figure out which one you could improve on. Where are you lacking and how could you take it to the next level in terms of your resources, skills, and experience? Which one needs a little extra attention? As I think about it, it's easy enough to buy resources, right? I mean, yeah, you've got to have the money to do that, but it's that straightforward. You figure out what you need, you go buy it or or get it. And skills... You can take a class or a course, watch some videos, read some books, and do a little practice and improve your skills. Now, what about experience, though? Well, I can tell you, every single time I go out backpacking, I learn something different. I learn something new, and I learn it by experience. And I think backpacking is one of the few things that really do give you experience for disasters. These are the things that never happen, which is why we're not prepared for them. Like, by definition, they don't happen every day. And then all of a sudden, it happens and we're not prepared because we've never experienced it before. And well, backpacking is one way to have actually experienced these things before without going and placing yourself in a natural disaster area to get that experience. So you can experience cold temperatures without having the heater go out in your house. You can experience heat without the AC going out in your house, and you can experience having to ration your water without having the water 
go out in your house. All of these things, you don't have to have the actual disaster. You can go backpacking and actually have those experiences that will be relevant when a disaster happens. It might be tempting to think, well, I'll just kind of wait it out when the disaster happens and wait for FEMA to swoop in and make everything all better. But I found FEMA's mission statement, and it sounds like their goal is to help us make it all better. So here is their mission statement. To support our citizens, that's us guys, <laughs> and first responders to ensure that as a nation, us again, we work together to build, sustain, and improve our capability to prepare for, protect against, respond to, recover from, and mitigate all hazards. So it sounds like we have a big role in disaster response, relief, and eventually recovery. We want to share a story with you today of one of our listeners. His name is Emmanuel, and he and his wife started backpacking together. And the things that they learned while backpacking, they probably never imagined that they would actually have the opportunity to put them to use in a natural disaster. Hi, Heather. Hi, Josh. This is Emmanuel calling you from Puerto Rico. I have been uh, at the first 40 miles a uh, follower in iTunes since... I believe December 2015, um, when my wife Karen and I decided to become backpackers. <laughs> and I even wrote to you a letter once about this wonderful trip that we had planned for the summer of 2016, which we did. Um, we did uh, Grand Canyon, we did the Rye Lakes Loop that is in Kings Canyon, it's a 40 miler. We did uh, some nights at Yosemite Valley and some beautiful day hikes a glacier. Then, of course, we wanted more backpacking, so we did the W trek in Patagonia, Chile, another 40 miler, very, very beautiful. And this last summer, we did uh, the Salcantay trek, which was uh, 41 miles. It's a beautiful trek across the Andes, and it ends up in the town, which is uh, Aguas Calientes, where Machu Picchu is located. The reason why I'm leaving you this story is that my wife Karen and I have learned so much from our experiences backpacking, um, reading about it, listening to your podcast and watching YouTube channels and all that. I wanted to tell you how important backpacking became when we experienced Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, which, as you probably know, left an incredible amount of dem devastation and severely crippled the power infrastructure and to some degree the water infrastructure, infrastructure I'm sorry, as well. Believe it or not, the first two weeks of the of the emergency, we were basically without the basic services, at least in my portion where I live in San Juan, Puerto Rico. That meant that there was actually a little bit of running water, but it was uh, not fit for human consumption as many of the uh, required equipment to clean the water was not available. In addition to that, we were struggling with power, which we still are. 50% of the people in Puerto Rico to this date have no power. But what came for us, for Karen and I, what came really incredible was that, or what was, I'm sorry, really incredible was that we were able to use our backpacking equipment and our backpacking skills to um, face the crisis, to face the natural catastrophe. So we had like three different means of purifying water, filtering water. We have our Sawyer Mini, we have Aquamira tablets, we have the Catadine Hiker Pro filter, uh, we had tarps, we had 
two tents. We have three different means of starting fire. We have headlamps, a Yuko lantern, portable solar panels, portable batteries, and all these things and the know-how on how to use them work very well for our friends and our family members. So we were filtering water for our friends. Um, I used to carry my Ecatalin Hiker Pro and my collapsible bucket, Sea to Summit, one gallon bucket, just to visit my friends and to filter water for them. Because at the very beginning of the emergency, there was no access to bottled water or to even filters. So whether can you believe this or not, um, hiking or backpacking skills are essential surviving skills in a natural catastrophe. Um, we felt very empowered, we felt ready, and in those first three weeks or the first month of the emergency, we felt unbeatable and able to help others, especially the people we love or maybe strangers, which we did. So that was my two pennies on how transferable our backpacking skills to national emergency skills. <laughs> so take care and be safe. Happy trails. Mucho cariño de Puerto Rico. And we really want to thank Emmanuel for sharing this experience. Wasn't that amazing? And and the piece that really caught me is when he said that the backpacking skills and gear and experience gave them the confidence that they felt like, hey, even though a disaster has happened, we're going to be okay. We're going to overcome this. And having that confidence, wow, that must have helped out so much. They felt empowered. I love that. For today's Backpack Hack of the Week, using your backpack as a 72-hour kit. A 72-hour kit is a mobile container filled with all the necessities of life that you would need for three days, which is 72 hours. This is starting to sound like a backpacking trip, <laughs> but oh, yeah. it would contain food, water, a change of clothing, some form of shelter, supplies for sanitation, maybe some medical supplies, uh, your contact information, identification, and any other vital documents. I would put photocopies in there. Um, and anything else that you would need, like maybe a house key or a car key. Um, and then, of course, your favorite stuffed animal gets tossed in there, too. So all of this stuff goes into a portable container, which we have. We have backpacks. All of these supplies can be assembled in advance you keep them in a safe and convenient location in the home. A lot of people keep their 72-hour kits either underneath their bed or they'll keep them in the coat closet by the front door. And people who have a long commute are usually storing their 72-hour kits in the trunk of their car so that if it happens when they're not at home, they've got it. The reasoning behind 72 hours is that it's going to take at least three days for rescuers to start to build their response to a disaster. And so you need to be totally self-sufficient for those first three days. And after that, you may start to have access to some community or government resources. So about 10 years ago, before I was back into backpacking, before Heather was into backpacking, we put together 72-hour kits for each member of our family. They were these day packs that had all of those things that Heather mentioned, and we had them stashed in a closet that was pretty close to our front door. And every once in a while, every six months or so, we would pull them out open them up and replace, you know, clothing that the kids had outgrown that was never used, um, but it was there in case we needed it, or food that had been in there a while. We could go ahead and eat that and put some new food in, things like that. And then we'd put them back in the closet and there they'd stay. 
And if a disaster had happened, it would have been useful. We could have pulled out those day packs, and if we needed to carry them on our backs, we could have done so. They were a bit heavy for day packs, I think. Uh, and of course, day packs don't have hip belts, so all the weights on the shoulders. They would have worked. But today, if I were given the option of carrying that 72-hour kit versus saying, well, how about I just take my backpack that I take backpacking every time? Well, I'd vote for my backpack. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to take my doiter that's got the nice hip belt and sternum strap and, you know, everything else and just fits perfect. And it has tons of capacity so I can pick things up and add them into the pack if I need to. I mean, that's what I'd vote for. So the trick is, how do you take care of the goal of a 72-hour kit, which is to have something always on hand, ready to go at a moment's notice, while also, you know, recognizing that your backpacking backpack is actually the best thing to put on your back? Well, here's how I would do it. I would get a large garbage bag and fill it with all of the things that you need for your 72-hour kit and then put that entire bag into your pack so that if you need to dash out the door, if your area has been evacuated, you can grab that pack that's filled with all of your 72-hour kit items and head out the door. Or if you want to go backpacking, you can take out that whole garbage bag filled with stuff and leave it in the closet and then pack your pack like you would for a backpacking trip. Oh, that's a great way to go. And then I think some people, you know, with maybe a little more expertise could take it even further. I think they could identify all of the things that are going to be both for backpacking and for 72-hour survival and have their pack pre-packed with those things. Oh, clever. Yeah. There's a few little wrinkles, though, like your sleeping bag. You don't want to, you don't want to leave it in your pack all compressed. You want to store it all fluffed up where it can air out and, and not be packed down. So there's some things like that you got to figure out. Well, I suppose you could hang your sleeping bag on a coat hanger in the closet right by your pack. And certainly your 10 essentials, I'd want every one of those yep. in my 72-hour kit, so that's easy. Uh, water, yeah, you could have like a single-use water bottle full of water just stowed in your pack at all times. Every time you go backpacking, you drink that bottle of water and then you just put a new one in after the trip, ready for the next trip or the next disaster. And same thing with food. You could have some non-perishable packaged food just always in your pack. Well, either way, whether you do the kind of the simple approach, like Heather said, of just filling a bag with all your 72-hour kit items and just sticking it in your pack and then pulling it out whenever you want to actually go backpacking, or whether you go a little more strategic. Yeah, <laughs> right. And sophisticated <laughs> and and actually figure out for each and every item how it's going to be used in both a backpacking situation and a survival situation. Either way, we just think this is a terrific idea to keep your 72-hour kit items in the thing that is going to be the most comfortable for you to carry. Absolutely. And if you're interested in learning more about 72-hour kits, head on over to ready.gov slash build hyphen a hyphen kit. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Vincent Van Gogh. He said, I often think that the night is more alive and more richly colored than the day. 
thought this was an interesting quote for this episode because natural disasters can really feel like night. Everything is obscured and uncertain, and all we want is for life to be back to normal. But this quote kind of puts a twist on night. Like we heard in Emmanuel's story, he had opportunities to serve while his community was in crisis and rise to the occasion as he tested his skills. And so it kind of, it's an odd paradox that night is more alive and richly colored, but Emmanuel's life became more alive and more richly colored because of his experience during the disaster. Well, we hope that this episode motivates you to increase your level of preparedness for disasters, while at the same time using everything that you've gained from your experience as a backpacker. That ingenuity, I think, is something really cool about backpacking. And all those hacks that we share on the uh, on the episodes of the show, they're just meant to kind of spark your creativity and help you see how you can make do or make shift or, you know, all those words, uh, just to to make something work on the trail, to take care of a need. And we've published the hacks from the first 40 episodes and the second 40 episodes of the podcast in a series called Backpacking Hacks. Well, we just published book number three. It contains all of the hacks from episodes 81 through 120 of the first 40 miles. So Backpack Hacks, volume three, you can grab it on Amazon or iTunes. Uh, on Amazon, you can get it as an ebook or as a print book. Uh, they're fairly inexpensive, quick read, fun read. Every hack is illustrated. And they're inspiring. They make you want to get out and try this stuff and do something on the trail. So, yes, Backpacking Hacks, book number three is out. And you can find it on Amazon or iTunes or at thefirst40miles.com slash shop. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your backpacking story. You can record it at thefirst40miles.com slash story. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. Have you ever thought about how your skills as a backpacker can be a huge benefit? Huge. 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 Whoa. It is fun to say it like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>